complex, confusing set of policies and processes by which students move between colleges has been an acknowledged barrier impeding post-secondary completion, particularly for students from underrepresented minority groups, low-income, and first-generation backgrounds. Are public university systems the best hope for improving the transfer process? Hello, and welcome back to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed and host of The Key. Thanks for listening today. Transfer is not a new issue by any means, but student mobility is a focus of policymakers as never before, given the growing number of learners who attend more than one institution because their educational goals change or life intervenes. Lots of organizations, from the Beyond Transfer Policy Advisory Board to the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association, have undertaken major initiatives focused on student mobility. Today's episode looks at some of the transfer work being done by the major college and university systems that enroll a majority of today's students. Joining us today are two experts. One is Dan Knox, Director of the Institute for Systems Innovation and Improvement at the National Association of System Heads, known as NASH, which is undertaking various efforts to align the work of state systems on attacking this problem. Today's conversation also includes Rebecca Karoff, Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of Texas System, where she oversees a transfer advisory group and works with other systems in the state on these issues. Before we begin today's episode, here's a word from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is sponsoring a series of episodes on ensuring equitable post-secondary student success. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Now on to the conversation with Dan Knox and Rebecca Karoff. Dan and Rebecca, welcome to The Key. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Doug. And Rebecca, so nice to see you again. Great to be here. Thank you. Dan, maybe start by telling us a little bit about Nash's work on transfer and if it makes sense to you, how it fits into your larger portfolio as director of the Institute for Systems Innovation and Improvement there. So to kind of back out one level from transfer, um, in 2020, Nash engaged in a strategic planning initiative to sort of think about how our member systems and us as an organization could respond to, you know, all the changes happening. Uh, out there in, in 2020, as we remember, right? So we formulated three overarching metrics and goals around that. So to do with degree completion, social and ec- economic mobility, and then student debt. And so we see improving transfer student outcomes as pressing on all three of those larger metrics. So that's a big reason why we're so focused on transfer. The two main strands that we have going, the first is um, something we call Nash Improvement Communities or NICs. And so the the essence of that is applying improvement science methodology to the public higher education system context. So improvement science, if folks aren't familiar with it, isn't new. It's certainly been around for a long time and and mostly applied in the um, the healthcare sector, manufacturing, software development. But this is, I I believe, the first sort of large scale effort to apply that to the, the public higher education system context. Essentially, we're pulling together system and campus teams. And the two key features of it are speed. So we work in these really compressed 45-day cycles, and this is in a sector that's uh, not typically known for speed. And to do kind of rapid cycle R&D testing of ideas that are formulated from the bottom up, 
right, which is another kind of novel approach. We ask people that are closest to the problem to design the change ideas and tests. And then the second strand is applying artificial intelligence uh, solutions to transfer. And so the core of that is a partnership with Zach Pardos from UC Berkeley's Computational Approaches to Human Learning Lab. We're applying machine learning approaches using natural natural language processing models to solve for mapping course equivalency data at scale and then individualizing student transfer degree plans. So got a long way to go, but we're, we're seeing some intriguing early results. We'll come back to dig into some of that uh, a little later. Uh, Rebecca, start by telling us a little bit about what the UT system is doing with Nash on transfer and more broadly, maybe what your work on transfer entails. The project that Dan just mentioned about the AI and working to help with course equivalencies, there's a complementary strand of that project, which is grant funded that we are a part of. And it's looking at how faculty make decisions around credit transfer. And that is, uh, we have three of our institutions participating in this NASH sponsored program um, that are really doing, doing some sort of collective uh, qualitative data analysis as they talk to faculty groups, as they talk to department chairs, as they talk to others who play roles in the transfer process for our students. And there's also been some really interesting process mapping for how students experience transfer across our institutions. And it's been yielding fascinating information about what the transfer student experience might be, including things that are working really well, and then bottlenecks for, and, and, and it's been interesting for one of our institutions in particular to sort of learn, wow, we did not know that it was going to be so difficult for a student to sort of get their transfer credits evaluated in a timely way, just because of the different players involved, the different offices involved, the different units, where decisions happen. So it's been really very illuminating, both to sort of see what's working well and what's not working well. And there's it's a both and situation. But more broadly, the UT system it is focused on transfer quite extensively in, in multiple ways. And partly, you know, we have a legis we have a legislature that has passed some really important transfer leg- legislation over the last few years, in particular with a focus on reducing excess credits or credits that transfer students cannot apply towards their degrees. But we are a complex uh, environment for transfer. We have the UT system is one of Uh, seven university systems in the state of Texas, and there are 50 independent community college districts. So we, you know, we sort of refer to it as the Wild West for transfer students, the Wild West for many things, dual credit as well. So it's complex, and each system and each community college district might have their own policies. Well, of course, we adhere to legislation. We adhere to the requirements of the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board, which generally is the, the sets the rules for implementing the legislation. But in the UT system, we have a couple of different ways we're approaching it that I can dig into maybe as we move on through this discussion. We're seeing transfer discussed more than ever, but it's been talked about for a long time and worked on by a lot of people for a long time. Rebecca talking about the complexity of the transfer landscape in Texas with dozens of systems and that many more individual institutions is just one example. But Dan, what are the elements of the transfer, quote, problem that make it such a difficult nut to crack? Yeah, see, let, let me see how long we have here to, to <laughs> more than one thing. Yeah. Um, so just as a as an aside, before I came to Nash um, full time, I was at the State University of New York as, as an assistant provost there. And I, so I had transfer in my portfolio. So like like Rebecca, I'm a veteran of the transfer wars and so fought that in the, the, the wild north, as it were. 
I, I guess I would cite four things as being probably generalizable as problems kind of everywhere. And one is that the default setting for higher ed is atomization, right? I mean, it's flat, it's decentralized, it was built that way. And so when things aren't coordinated, that's not necessarily a bug, it's a feature, right? And so if, you, if you're if you not um, actively working on that coordination, I think it, things tend to pull apart and and uh, become more diffuse, right? Um, the second is connected to that, but it would be culture, right? And so you've got, you know, say the c- cultural differences between R1s and community colleges. They have different missions and different, you know, different position within the sector. So they naturally would have um, some different cultures. And so when you try to coordinate across those sectors, right, you bump up against um, some cultural issues. Um, the third one would be complexity. Right, the enormous complexity of curriculum, uh, curricula in particular, and data. Right, so the the project that we have going at SUNY, the AI project, is uh, these massive data sets, and you you dig down in there to collect the data, and it, it is just unbelievably complex. And so, sitting on top of that, you have all you know these advising systems and and staff and faculty trying to deal with all this complexity. And it's no wonder that everyone gets lost in that that shuffle, right? And then the interventions, I'll cite an example, but the interventions today tend to be institution-centered and not student-centered. Articulation agreements are a good example of that. They don't work particularly well. I I worked on them for a long time at SUNY. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that, but, you know, for one thing, um, they tend to be set up in these two plus two models, right? So the student goes for two years of community college and then they, you know, that's the idealized version. But the uh, data would show that only about 8% of students do that. But the patterns of what they do is are kind of all over the place. So we tend to have these these interventions that are very focused on what the institutions would like to have happen or what they think is happening and not what's actually happening in students. Yeah, and I, I love the way Dan framed all that and with the very sort of high level um, framing because but but what he's pointing to are real structural components of the way we our institutions operate and are structured and they are more institution centered as opposed to student centered, despite all our talk to say that we're going to be, you know, make our institutions student ready. And and we're, and we are, we, we are trying very hard to do that. But I do think, you know, all the things that he just named are critical for understanding um, why transfer is so hard to address and resolve at scale, but also speaks to the ways in which I think I know SUNY system, the UT system, and others, our colleague systems across the country are actually making real inroads. The structural component is huge and largely that our institutions haven't changed a whole lot in the last couple of hundred years in terms of how we structure degree programs, how we structure student experiences going through the programs. And yet our students are vastly different than they were. Um, And there's enormous complexity in who our students are. And they come in with all these different assets and challenges. And we haven't necessarily caught up sometimes in terms of the way our institutions are organized or departments were organized or academic degrees are organized to the way students are moving in through and out in terms of their needs, in terms of who they are. And we talk about in the UT system a lot, we have a focus on Hispanic students um, and servingness, Hispanic servingness, because we have huge numbers of of Hispanic uh, Latino students in our system. And we constantly sort of say we, you know, these are not, it's not a monolithic identity for our students. Likewise for transfer students. We can't say all transfer students are the same. They come in 
with having these vastly different experiences, sometimes from two years, sometimes from other four years. There is that, you know, famous swirl of transfer students in and out of universities. They come in maybe with an associate's degree. Those are the easy ones to deal with. But many of them will come in short of that, that however many credits, that 60 credits they need for the associate's degree. And so we're trying to figure out ad hoc piecemeal one-on-one, which we want to be doing, how to accept their credits and position them for, you know, being able to progress through um, as quickly as possible or in accordance with their their other goals and their needs in terms of whether they're working full-time, they're doing parenting and elder care, that kind of thing. So it's, it's sometimes I think the structure hasn't changed enough and neither has the sort of understanding that our students are very different, that the ones we're serving now than they were. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Talking today to Rebecca Karoff, Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of Texas System, and Dan Knox, Director of the Institute for Systems Innovation and Improvement at the National Association of System Heads. So we could, as Dan suggested earlier, talk for hours about the underlying problems with transfer, but these are fairly well known. And while it makes sense to surface them to underpin this discussion, we really want to focus to the extent possible on the work that's being done to try and overcome those problems and make the system work better. Dan, what are some of the things starting to emerge from Nash's transfer work that you consider to be most heartening, uh, having the most impact so far? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll start with, um, as I mentioned, the next, the, the improvement communities. So I, I'm a good person to talk about that because I, when I first came in, I, I have to admit, I, and I really say this uh, often is I was deeply skeptical of this approach. I was, you know, improvement science, really? Is this going to, you know, I mean, having been, you know, in the transfer wars for over a decade at SUNY, you know, one gets a bit jaded, right? But I've been really pleasantly surprised with the results um, of this. And so essentially, we're bringing together for each one of these, these cohorts that we have four systems, right? And so we now have two cohorts um, underway. And each one of the um, systems has a has a lead from the system office, and then they arrange uh, up, up to three campus teams. And the campus teams, importantly, have, as I mentioned, the people that are closest to uh, to the problem working with students. So these would be transfer advisors, registrars, faculty, those folks that are in on the ground with the students every day. And so um, we bring the teams together. We give them a bit of training, professional development <clears throat> with the coach with this improvement science methodology. And then we break the work up into these 45 day cycles, right? So they each team comes up with three tests of change that they're gonna go back and do that they have to be able to complete in 45 days. So necessarily it has to be something that's within their locus of control, right? They're not gonna go lobby the governor's office or anything like that. They're gonna go back and uh, and they they're tend to be very small in terms of end sizes. So they, it might be something that you would try with 10 students to see if it would work. Right. And then they and another important thing that helps with the cultural component is it's okay to fail. Right. So they'll go try this test that didn't work. 
right? And so often in higher ed, we get, you know, Rebecca and I have both been in this situation. We get handed this massive initiative from on high and you, you have to go spend millions of dollars and thousands of man hours or, or people hours to uh, implement it. And then it can't not work, right? Like you, it's got to work. So, so this is, this, and, and so I think people become fearful of trying things. And so this approach has kind of freed that up. You can sort of feel the energy of people um, engaging in this and trying. So they, they do the test of change. There's data that's, that tracks it. And then we all come back together and share the results and say, this worked, this didn't work. We're going to adapt or, you know, scale this. Just as a point of reference, the first cohort that went through completed 109 tests of change. And so a percentage of those worked. And so those are going to be iterated right? And with bigger end sizes, bigger end sizes. And so what we hope to have by the end of next year is what we would call a change package. So it would be a set of, I don't know, however many it'll be, five or 10 well-tested ideas that then we can go out and scale, you know, to the field. And, and you know, you had mentioned, it, it, does this only apply to, to uh, NASH members or public higher education systems? No, it doesn't, right? It's anybody that would be involved in transfer. You know, we could recommend trying these five ideas. So, um, so I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty geeked about this approach. And and it's very, very different than anything I've ever experienced. Can you give us an example of a couple of the tests that worked or maybe even that didn't, but just to try and give people something to grab onto uh, in terms of like what this is, what this might look like? So this isn't an approach that would solve every problem, right? to do with transfer or anything else. Like you probably wouldn't want to do gen ed reform with this, right? But um, it really excels at um, kind of what I call the ground game things, like the student touch points, so registration, enrollment, you know, that kind of advising, those kinds of things. I liken it to um, kind of ripping up the rotten floorboards and fixing the stuff, you know, underneath. And there's a lot of rot out there, right? So that my favorite example of this was we engaged in something called process mapping, which I know UT is doing a version of that with the project Rebecca mentioned, where you kind of map out what happens to a student through this experience in a very detailed and rigorous way. And so one of our um, teams uncovered this policy that was put in the place in the 1500s or whatever it was, where transfer students, because they were seen as you know more advanced students, were assigned to a faculty advisor that they had to meet with before registration. Well, here's the problem. They're not around in the summer. So they were insisting that students meet with an, an advisor that, that isn't there, right? So they, they were able to shift that around and surprise, surprise, saw some much better results. And then out of that one test, which I think was 11 students to start with, they scaled it to the whole system because it just, you know, they just uncovered something that was just a flaw in the policy. So that that's an example, but it was fixed in 45 days. Rebecca, are there examples from the work you're doing that you think would be instructive for people elsewhere to hear about? One is we really need to sort of use data better to understand who our transfer students are, as I said, and remove barriers in front of them. So we have several projects that we're in which we're doing that. Um, we also, in some ways, we 
it's speaking to sort of the vestigial sort of understanding of who students are, you know, again, some of our institutions, not all of them, some were sort of formed as junior, senior institutions, but some of them sort of think of, still think of students, faculty, others as like, oh, they're all first time in college and transfer students are not first time in college. So just changing a bit of the mindset, understanding the value of, of transfer students and the impact of improved credit mobility for them in terms of their success. So those are things, you know, that are transferred group and all the work that's taking place do really well. But I, I will say this. So Dan mentioned that, you know, articulation agreements are so archaic and, and that um, they're problematic because they're so institution focused, not so much student focused. But I will say this, that we know that good relationships with primary community college partners for each of our institutions is are huge, are huge. And I'll, I'll just name two examples. Um, at UT San Antonio has an incredible working relationship with the Alamo Colleges, which is a very large community college system. And they're, and they are very focused on their students. They are very focused on who's coming in. How are they coming in? Who's transferring? They have a, a great, they do have a great, it's not just a two plus two program, Dan, but it's just a very strong partnership for automatically accepting the credits that those Alamo Colleges will bring into the four year UT San Antonio. Those, and that's been very intentional human-centered, student-centered, labor-intensive work um, that has had to happen. And for, and that's right for that institution in that part of the state. Likewise, I'll mention El Paso, UT El Paso on the Western border and, um, and uh, the work they're doing with, they really only have one primary community college partner, El Paso Community College. And in some ways, they, they it's been an evolving relationship. Recently, they've really sort of doubled down with new leadership at, in different places there to say, you know, we need to get back to this really strong working relationship because in the last few years, some of it pandemic induced, we've seen declines in enrollments, especially at community colleges in Texas, less so for us in the UT system, although we have been losing some transfer students and others where in other ways our enrollments are booming, um, you know, to sort of know that you really have to, to build those relationships. And I'll give one example from our Lumina funded Equitable Student Pathways project, which isn't per se a transfer project, but we have these projects that are focused on cultivating what we call data agency, mainly getting data, actionable data into the hands of people who can use it. Um, and this is a very transfer centric uh, way of thinking, because we know that often our advisors, for example, don't have good data so that they can advise their transfer students better. And advising for transfer students is one of the big areas that we hear from students and others as being challenging. Again, it's a, partly a resource issue, but it's partly like we don't set our advisors necessarily up for the success, for success so they can guide students. This relates also to the kind of conversations that departmental faculty need to have around any given discipline with, with the community college partner they have. Now, this is only talking about vertical transfer two year to four years, so there's other ways. We recently had a project that was focused on redesigning the music curriculum or components of it at UT El Paso. They were looking strongly at the transfer students coming in from El Paso Community College and thinking, you know, 
we have this fundamentals course that maybe isn't working for the students we have at El Paso or the ones coming in from El Paso Community College. Maybe we need to rethink that. If you sort of drill down into both the data, what the data is telling you as finely sliced and disaggregated as, as it can be, and then also think about what is the com- curricular component that maybe is the holdup for students. Why aren't, aren't why aren't our students succeeding in this pathway? Well, it's because you have a foundational course that may not be what students are needing or you may need to sequence it differently or offer it differently. And again, to sort of fit the needs of the students you have at your institution and who you want to be coming in from from another institution. I could follow up on something Rebecca mentioned. She mentioned data, and I think that was in reference to to student data. But um, if I can speak to a little bit uh, course equivalency data as as another really important gap and challenge to the field and and what we're working on. When you say course equivalency data, it's this calculus course at campus A maps to this calculus course at campus B, right? That at scale. I'm out here in California. The the, uh, legislature just passed this AB uh, 1111 legislation that that is requiring the community college system, the 116 institutions to establish common course numbering. Well, just as a point of reference, mapping the 116 community colleges to the UC centers is about 36 million course pairs. It's not a tractable problem manually, right? And everyone has that problem because, you know, when you start to layer advising systems and degree mapping tools and, and you know, advisors needing it, there's just holes in those data. So the machine learning approach that we're taking with the lab at Berkeley is developed um, a course recommender system for for that. So it's it's using um, natural language processing models. Now we're not replacing human decision making and have no aspirations to do that. But what it will do is, is make a suggestion. It's it's almost like a Google cross courses to say you know this course looks like it's equivalent to these courses and um so we've got you know we've got it up and running in a research capacity and and so i think that has a lot of promise to help with that problem pulling back the frame a little bit what are the most important reasons for nash and its system members and higher education collectively to make headway on this is it the cost and price and perceived value of higher education is it are the equity concerns is it efficiency? You mentioned equity for sure, particularly the community college access point to the four years is a key um, entry point for students of color, first gen, low income students, so on. So that's that's on everyone's mind. You know, there there's certainly, um, depending on where you are, as you mentioned, the competition for enrollments, that's real. And students are, you know, if we're driving them away with some of these practices, they're voting with their feet. You can see it in the national um, data on transfer coming out of the clearinghouse. It's the most important thing, I guess, in my experience for why it continues to bubble up is the voices of students and families, right? You, you can see it in the press. So you, you'll get these anecdotes a lot of times of students getting um, really poor treatment, poor outcomes. That can go to a legislator or the system office or campus president or whatever it may be, but it, the, the students and their families are speaking about these issues and, and we're listening. Affordability is a really key issue, but for me, I'll, I'll sort of land where Dan has on sort of, you know, just providing equitable access. We, we really think about that whole student success continuum of access and persistence through completion of. And we and the University of Texas system have done some phenomenal research, some of it funded by Gates. And these are other colleagues of mine um, around post-secondary value and thinking about um, wage earnings and outcomes and how our graduates are faring. So we have a ton of data 
data about that. And we are able to look at the gaps. And, you know, this is why I think the data is so important. Like it, you are going, when you, when you disaggregate the data and sort of say, where are the trouble spots for individual students coming in? And I, because I focus on undergraduate student success, I'm more focused on what do we do to make sure the students who we admit and for whom we have that responsibility, what do we do to make sure they can be successful? How do we remove barriers? How do we build up all the, the support they need? Um, and, and structurally, what do we need to change in our institutions to, to help ensure that they have get access and not just into the university, but to the majors that they want, and then that they're able to, to persist through and, and complete degrees. So it is the equity piece. But again, it's really thinking about at a very personalized level, what do students need? And remembering that there's not some monolithic group called transfer students or some monolithic group called Hispanic students or whatever, but these are individuals who come in with their individual needs. So, you know, how do we make sure we're not focused on fixing students, but on fixing our institutions to make sure that we remove barriers in ways that are both personalized and individual and structural? You've talked about a lot of things happening at at very granular levels in 45-day chunks and thinking about sort of all the work that all the little pieces of work that are happening. And if you were to look out three, five years from now, what are going to be the most important indicators of whether this work has succeeded? Yeah, there are several. I would degree completion. I know it's like that's what everyone always says, but those are not equitable outcomes. Right. And so we set as a goal for 2030 that the percentage of in-state students enrolling at two year institutions uh, who transfer and complete bachelor's degrees, that that would increase by 7 percent. You know, we can say we want to increase it by 150 percent, but we, you know, we need to be realistic about what's possible. So we as a group within the NIC, they, you know, we kind of set that. One point on equity that is maybe a little under-discussed is the inequitable outcomes between transfer and non-transfer students, right? Particularly around degree completion. Time to degree is a big one, and that that informs cost and, you know, opportunity costs and actual out-of-pocket costs, and then credits at completion. So those those tend to be out of whack. And so if we're if we're seeing real results here, we should start to see those equitable outcomes um, improve. And then I think, you know, we're, we're kind of setting up a structure for continuous improvement. It's not just, oh, here's the goal and we're going to reach the goal, but like we, we set up some processes so we can always be improving and, and learning. That was Dan Knox, director of the Institute for Systems Innovation and Improvement at the National Association of System Heads, who joined the key today along with Rebecca Karoff, uh, associate vice chancellor for academic affairs at the University of Texas System. Thanks to them both for their thoughtful insights, and thanks again to the Gates Foundation for its support for this and the next two episodes of The Key. We certainly didn't solve the transfer problem in that conversation, but I hope today's episode offers a glimpse into some of the work being done to try to address this really vexing issue. I've used the word intractable to describe the messy transfer landscape before, but it's probably best to think of it as one of what Georgetown University's Randy Bass calls higher education's wicked problems than as something that just can't be fixed. It is one of the numerous problems that flow from the fact that we don't have a system of higher education, which makes it hard to resolve a systemic problem like this one. But if enough smart people and dedicated organizations attack the problem and try to coordinate their work to some extent, maybe, just maybe, they can chip away and make progress. That's all for this episode of The Key. We'll be back soon with a look at a new effort to develop low-cost courseware to close equity gaps in gateway courses and a special 100th episode of The Key. 
Till then, I'm Doug Letterman. Uh, Stay well and stay safe.